Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. My guest today once said, talent doesn't have a zip code, but turning that attitude into a reality is difficult. And there's no question that African-American, Latinx, Native American, and low-income students face barriers to developing their talents. In the future, we're going to do several episodes exploring issues related to equity in gifted education and talent development. To help us start exploring this topic, I'm honored to have Professor James Moore as my guest today. Professor Moore is the Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Ohio State University, where he also serves as the EHE Distinguished Professor of Urban Education and the Director of the Todd Anthony Bell National Resource Center on the African American Male. Among the top experts on the educational and psychological experiences of black men and boys, Dr. Moore has also served on the Board of Directors of the National Association for Gifted Children. Last but not least, James is a good friend of mine, and I'm very excited to have him with us today. James, welcome to Bright Now. Hi, how are you doing? So you and I have talked about these issues um, off and on for years. We've had really interesting discussions, and I'm just really excited to have you on today. Thanks for doing it so we can essentially share the things that we've been talking about as we try to crack this nut, so to speak. It's a very tricky one. Let's start. I'm, I'm just interested in having you share the unique barriers that you think disadvantaged students face when trying to develop their talents? Well, one of the things uh, that I've noticed through my own research and through the work uh, that I have done in terms of the programmatic efforts that I've been involved in over the years, uh, too often underrepresented groups are seen as a part of a group rather than the individual. And oftentimes a stigma of the inferiority follows them everywhere they go, from the mother's womb until, um, until the, all throughout the educational pipeline. But what I've discovered is the first factor uh, that I would use as a header is educational factors. The second factor is family cultural factors. And the third factor is what I would call social and community factors. And the last factor would be individual factors. Some of the educational factors uh, that I've noticed through my own work is that uh, negative interactions with educational professionals. And many years ago in 2003, I published a paper with some colleagues in the high school journal, and we wanted to look at what factors uh, influence educational aspirations for African-American students. We looked at locus of control, cognitive ability, uh, income, students' perceptions, how the teacher perceived them, students' perceptions, how uh, school counselors perceive them. As you probably can imagine, the perceptions had more impact uh, on the students' educational aspirations. So in other words, when a student, even when they had the cognitive ability, even when their family income was high, if they perceived the teacher not perceiving them having the ability to be successful, it had negative consequences on their educational outcomes. And so with teachers and educators, we always communicate, but it's very important that we train educators to communicate accurately and consistently uh, support and care in their instruction. Right. The other one is under educational factors would be uh, the absence of challenge in school. 
uh, too often students, we know in the research that all AP, all gifted programs are not created equally. Uh, unfortunately, we see educational malpractice taking place all across America where uh, sometimes gifted and talented programs, you're in a program, but it's, it lacks the kind of rigor that is indicative of seamlessly moving uh, up the gifted and talented uh, pipeline. You know, James, on uh, that point, I'm always reminded of the second President Butch's quote, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And he, he got mocked a little bit for that. But that's that really is what we're talking about, right, is is yeah. just not yeah. believing that these mm-hmm. students can perform at high levels. So even like you just said, even when we can provide them with advanced programming, it's not rigorous, so yeah. they're paying this big opportunity cost, and so they're losing on the back end too, even when we think we're helping them. I think that's a really great point. Yeah, it's solvable. I think we could address it. Uh, and I don't think teachers naturally, some teachers think they have rigorous classrooms, but uh, we don't provide, classrooms increasingly uh, tend to be siloed and educators are not interested in always receiving feedback, continuous improvement. I think we need to foster continuous improvement uh, within the classroom, not only among the students, but the people who deliver the instruction uh, to the students. The other broad category, and there are numerous to mention, but I'm not going to mention them all, uh, is what I would group under family culture factors. And the family culture factors sometimes family dynamics have sometimes negative uh, consequences on educational outcomes for gifted and talented students. Some, not saying all, uh, strange strained relations within the family. Um, and when those things happen, they have uh, negative consequences in the classroom. Uh, we know another thing that is common, it's an issue, is how do we educate students who come from you know, economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, We know poverty, um, you know, not that students can't learn at a very high level, but we know sometimes the challenges that are centered around poverty have negative impacts on students' learning. Uh, Another issue that is happening, you see it across uh, uh, class structures, is the minimum parental academic monitoring and guidance. Increasingly, uh, parents are not being as engaged in, in their uh, students' educational attainment as, as they should. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, increasingly in middle-class households, you have two parents working professional jobs, and in turn, it sometimes have impact on students learning. The parents can provide the resources for the students, but oftentimes that is what we know in, in, in the social science literature that is more than just offering resources and opportunities. Mm. Sometimes meaningful, um, um, meaningful engagement is more important than sometimes the resources that the school provide for mm. students. And I mean monitoring making sure that the students don't fall in between the gap, uh, monitoring their homework and their progress in school. And so it's very important that families understand uh, their importance in the educational progress of their students. And, 
you know, I ask this question frequently uh, around the country, and I ask when I'm doing trainings with educators, and I say, how many here actually took a parenting class? You'll be pretty surprised that very few mm. in the room raise their hands, and, and in particular, very few fathers raise their hands. Right. And so you know this, being a social scientist, that IQ is highly correlated with mother's educational attainment mm. and father's income because increasingly across America, even though we have Renaissance dads, moms are still doing most of the educational enrichment and support and providing the support to their students. Exactly. And and fathers have a tremendous role, but even though more women are getting more college, uh, they're still doing more or um, more enrichment. And I can understand why it's highly correlated because women are going to college at a higher rate. And not only that, they're translating that college education into the enrichment of their children. But the fathers, uh, when I say father's income, we know men make more money than women uh, across the board when you're within uh, race and between racial groups. And when you have resources, not only can parents provide the necessary monitoring and support to their students when they have challenges uh, with doing homework or even navigating the terrains of challenges between teachers or peers as a parent, they have more time to do those things and resources. And, and, and we know that there's a correlation also uh, the kind of resources a school have and where you, uh, where you live. And unfortunately, we see these kinds of things happening all across America, uh, that family and culture factors play a tremendous role. And then the other places in these vulnerable, fragile communities where resources are not on par as some of our suburban and affluent communities, is that many of these communities have inconsistent role models uh, that students can access, uh, a college-going culture, a culture for embracing rigor. It's not that I'm saying that these that people don't have these kind of aspirations uh, or attributes that, you know, that attract to rigor, is that sometimes the challenges within those spaces make it difficult to focus on the things that really matter. The other factor is the social community factor, uh, which is pretty common in, in the literature, uh, particularly as, as, as it relates to men of color, uh, negative educational uh, and or surrounding community environment. Many of our schools don't necessarily foster the kind of educational excellence for young boys in general and boys in, of color in particular. Uh, I have said numerous times going beyond the, the gifted and talented literature that I project that the new, there will be a new affirmative action in the United States. And the new affirmative action I predict probably within the next 15 to 20 years will be men. Right. Uh, when you look across America, uh, when you look at the groups that are uh, consistently underachieving and low achieving, it's young men across race. 
Uh, the only difference is when you begin to look within groups, particularly black males, comparing black males with their black female counterparts, uh, black women are the only group of women that have matriculated in college at a higher rate and for much longer than their male counterparts. For nearly a hundred years, uh, black women have been matriculating at a higher rate than their male counterparts. In the 80s, when you look within uh, the white population, women, white women passed white males in the mid 80s and not looking behind and the increasingly you're seeing a gap between. And you can look at other racial groups, Asian uh, and native indigenous populations. Women are matriculating at a higher rate than men. Increasingly, I top uh, public institutions, you'll find more women than men in those institutions. And this is a, a people not really paying attention to it, but there are some scholars looking at the status of men uh, in the United States, but around the globe, there are other places probably a little bit more progressive uh, in this kind of work than the United States. In the UK, they've already explored with affirmative action with white males because they see these same challenges and trends. If you do a Google and, and uh, of the Chinese, the young Chinese lad, in China, they have great concerns about the increasing underachievement and low achievement of Chinese males. Uh, so I will say this is becoming increasingly a national crisis, but people are not necessarily paying attention. And I'll tell you, Jonathan, to be frank with you, uh, I'm the executive director of the Todd Anthony Bell National Resource Center on the African-American male, and I frequently get more calls from white families, hmm. if you didn't know what my center would focus on, uh, what I when I describe some of these challenges, many of these families, and these families tend to be highly educated, middle-class families, that they say their son is very smart, very capable, does very well on standardized tests, but may not do their homework, may be un unmotivated to go to class, or unmotivated, or doing kinds of things that contribute to their academic demise. And so these families who are experiencing this, uh, they're concerned, but it's not really a lot of resources mm. that pay attention to it. And particularly when we start to think about white males, is that, you know, many ways in America, you know, they've been targeted in, in many ways for the challenges and shortcomings of many groups. And I do recognize that I'm very sensitive to all of it. Is the but to the point, some of the vulnerability and some of the public outcry that we see around the country, I'm not surprised because you know even colleagues like you know um, Charles Murray in his latest book he highlights some of the challenges and the decline and and the spiral spiraling decline of white males, particularly working class and working poor white males in America. Um,
that's a really important distinction that we need to talk about, right, is that class and income, uh, essentially socioeconomic status, as researchers would talk about it, that intersects with issues of race and issues of gender um, and makes a complex situation even more difficult to actually address, right? Yep. And, and you know this, it's, it's very difficult to engage democracy at a very high level when a group of individuals are not afforded the opportunity to have a quality education. And in America, we should be appalled. We see educational malpractice taking the place all across this country. And in turn, it's only going to impact us uh, our, in ways that we can't even comprehend. Right. You know, it's going to be hard for us to maintain our global edge if we don't really come together and think about what's, what are some of the collective goods that we can do to improve quality education for the whole state country. Right. And as you and I have talked about before, uh, when we talk about these disadvantaged student groups, just the ones that you've talked about thus far, that's probably well over half of our student population, right? And if we're not helping over half of our student population develop their gifts and talents, become contributing members to a society, have social mobility, it's not that hard. Be pessimistic, right? For the country's uh, future. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in in specifically with black males, but really with any disadvantaged group, James. I mean, what are some uh, strategies that you tend to share with people, um, especially when you know they see their sons and daughters struggling, uh, dealing with these issues of under-resourced schools, bias, uh, family issues? Well, you know, some of the things that I, I, I first tell students, what are the, I mean, tell families and, and educators, first we need to know uh, what are important attributes for scholastic achievement? And, you know, um, it's pretty salient in the in the scientific literature. And these are some of the many things that I say uh, that is very important and that we need to develop a, a structure and support systems around these kind that foster these attributes. And one is a strong internal locus control, uh, helping students with their aspirations because oftentimes, uh, not that I want to be a dream killer, but sometimes students' aspirations, there's a disconnect, a major disconnect in what they, how they need to perform in the classroom or what they're, the kinds of courses they're engaged in uh, and what their aspirations are. Um, not only that positive belief in self, Increasingly, I'm, I'm very concerned across America, uh, the anxiety that students have when they uh, enter rigorous academic spaces. And in turn, you find that students, even when they do really well in these classes, uh, they don't always have a positive belief in themselves or a belief in their capability. Uh, to me, that's fundamentally could be a challenge for them uh, if we don't sometimes intervene. Uh, and, and, and the more confident a student has in its ability, uh, the more likely that they were uh, stick to um, whatever their, uh, stick to the situation or the, uh, or, no, regardless of how rigorous the course may be. 
And then the other one is maturity, academic and social confidence, positive early school experiences. You know, too often young people are not having the kind of positive experiences. Uh, and by not having those experiences, it, they become jaded about their educational experiences as they continue to progress. Strong soft skills. Uh, this is one of the big things that I'm noticing among males um, in general and males of color in particular. You know, first of all, I ask some questions um, sometimes to young men that matriculate on our campus. You know, you, you, when you're given a talk, you say, who, who pulled out a sheet of paper? Who pulled out that laptop to actually take notes? And then if they did take notes, what do the, are the notes of, of quality? And we know, not that I'm trying to be sexist, women uh, tend to take more notes. They tend to be more legible and, to, and they tend to have more breath than the notes <laughs> um, of young men. Right. And in turn, these kinds of things impact young men's skills, even though they do really well on the test, but sometimes it doesn't play out when they actually take the class. The other piece is self-regulation and task oriented. You know, how do we help young men become more self-regulated that their parents don't have to uh, ride them every day just to do their homework? Yeah, they got the grades, but when they matriculate to college, whatever it took for them to get through high school is probably going to take the same kinds of things for them to be successful in college. And when they don't have those kind of reinforcements, oftentimes we see students underachieve or low achieve or fall way beyond their capability. And so some of the contextual factors that I think are really important that I tell parents, and this is a, a K to gray kinds of things that needs uh, needs to be reinforced constantly uh, to uh, our gifted and talented students. The first one is interest. You know, and that is a person's degree of devotion, concern, or curiosity for a particular academic subject. It's hard to be interested in something if you've never been exposed to it. Too many of our young people in some of these fragile schools, vulnerable, that has students who come from high populations uh, of students who come from vulnerable communities, many of them foreclose on opportunities that sometimes, excuse me, that are presented to them because they've never been exposed to it. But we know in the research literature how to get students interested in a variety of topics, but we don't quite know how to sustain their interest over a period of time. Yet we get students, a lot of the people say, we need to get people into STEM. I use that as an example. And I would imagine there's a correlation of those who have score very high on quantitative and mathematic, mathematical uh, assessments uh, typically going to probably uh, be more attracted to the STEM area. But even though they may have these capabilities, does not mean that they will actually enter those domains if we don't translate how these courses directly connect to what they may want to do. And I would say uh, in our schools around the country, we don't do enough 
career development, but I think we do a lot of academic development. Mm. And I think when students are able to translate abstract content into actually uh, applied efforts, I think they're more likely to uh, sustain their interests in various domains in society. The other one is preparation. And that is a person's degree of readiness for a specific academic or professional endeavor based on maybe education or trainings. So we know that the more a student is prepared, the more likely they will do well in an advanced academic program or even beyond that. But too often, our students are not afforded the necessary preparation for their academic and career, potential academic and career trajectories. So preparation is critical and it's very important that we, we really crosswalk the, the various levels of preparations that a student need to have, or I guess thinking about the pathways. Right. And I think that this is an important point that I find myself increasingly emphasizing with people is that the problems that these students face don't happen overnight, right? They develop over a longer period of time. So when we say, wow, we really need to help these kids, we can't focus just on these really quick short-term solutions. Um, It's going to take time and a lot of concerted effort um, to turn away all these negative influences. And I think a good example is the current controversy with the New York City uh, selective schools. Everyone's coming up with these really quick fixes that are cosmetic, but they're not going to solve the long-term problem of preparing these students with a more rigorous education long before they get to high school. So it's a problem that has developed in New York City over 10 to 15 years, So all these one or two month Insta solutions are very short term feel good things, but they're not really going to materially change these students' lives. We need longer term sort of preparation interventions like you just mentioned. And and you know what's so problematic about that? And I, I think about it in other school districts as well. We have enough resources that we shouldn't have just one school. <laughs> Why right. can't we have multiple schools? I mean, uh, why Why do we only, I mean, why do we create systems that constantly perpetuate disparities? Right. You know, and I, I'm, I believe in academic rigor, but I want my, my children to have academic rigor, but I think it does good for the collective good for everybody to have academic rigor. Right. We have school systems with billion dollar, nearly billion dollar budgets, and they got half the schools are failing. And you got one or two what they consider flagship schools. And I'm saying something fundamentally is not right about that. I mean, at minimum, can we think about organize a system that at least we have four in each quadrant of a city? And you see this frequently happen in some of our urban school systems, not as as common in some of our rural school systems because they typically have one high school. They don't have as many schools because of the populations. And so you got a better chance for the students to get all that that community has to offer. But you see disparities and sometimes we focus on disparities between school districts. But I'm always saying let's focus on the disparities that we see within the schools. I mean, you know, sometimes we become so externally minded that we just overlook 
some of these blatant disparities that I see or educational malpractice at the highest level that a young person is taking everything that the, his or her school has to offer and it's still not enough right. and that's painful you know when people ask me frequently about uh, you know uh, uh, common core and 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 I, I kind of laugh when people bring it because in, in education as you know we're always looking for something that's gonna revolutionize and I think the answers are in many of the journals that have been published over the last hundred years and it's always like someone presents something as if it's a new idea uh, some of it is do we have the will uh, to do what we know works and number two to stand to take you know like you said it's not a quick fix but everybody's looking for that quick answer and you know the, to have a rippling impact in a school system you really gotta sustain the reform and sometimes we have things that could work because we become so impatient we start not start to kind of change our efforts or change our mind and we make all these investments that 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 make people particularly not in the educational space begin to question you know the leadership or you get people who work in other sectors who think they can just transform the schools overnight when much of the social science research suggests you know that they're not going to be any better it may be some feel-good stories uh, that you know how they may try to masquerade as they're a lot better but in most cases they're probably not going to be any better and as you probably heard you know there's a proliferation of charter schools not that I want to beat up charter schools that's not my intent on, on your shoulder to beat up charter schools but what is so wrong about it in many states I'm not saying all states is that we let charter schools explore some of the innovative kinds of things and we still keep public schools in the same kind of realm of things and you know uh, and, and to me that's if, if it's if we have practices that are good they should not be limited to one sector of the educational space but you know thinking about it I said interest I will go back to some of the contextual factors I said talked about interest, I talked about preparations, but also the next one is experiences. The knowledge and or skills that a person gains by doing a particular task. We have to make sure that our young people have the educational experiences indicative of what they want to achieve or indicative of what we see as the purpose of advanced academics. Uh, we Internship experiences. We know the more our students can be able to translate, you know, like when we take chemistry, to take a chemistry class and not have the lab seem like malpractice to me. And we have some school districts in America that students are taking chemistry and they've never been in a laboratory. That seems to be fundamentally wrong when we think about that. And so how do we get the best teachers in in the in in in, in the classrooms for all students and there are some things that we could do and be revolutionary in in the classroom and and so Jonathan one of the things that I'll, I'll come back to my I got two more factors to talk about what I found in America 
we always doing educational reforms in some of the most fragile and vulnerable, vulnerable school systems in America. And what I mean by that is, in my school district, where my kids go, you will never see Teach for America in that school system. And if it was, and I'm, I'm not beating up on Teach for some, some of my mentees, and but I'm always wondering. I'm saying, well, if it's so good for the inner city and some of our rural schools, why aren't suburban schools doing it? They're not doing it because they don't see that one. They need it. Number two, uh, they don't. The quality is not what they what everybody kind of project what it is. And and so that's it's always interesting when I hear about reforms and what people should do. But I always look in some of our top school systems. They're never doing any of those kinds of things. Right. And when you think about in gifted and talented programs, it, some of the things that we focus on in, in some of our urban school systems, like behaviors and those kinds of things, and I know there are challenges, and I'm not questioning that, but I'm saying if we know about, if we didn't talk about some of those behaviors in a negative sense, those are same the behaviors that we talk about in, in the gifted and talented class uh, in a school system, we just don't demonize those behaviors. We celebrate some of those behaviors in a gifted and talented class that you raise your hand. And, you know, you can go in some schools, you raise your hand and you get excited. They might say, we're going to kick you out of our class. But in gifted and talented programs, we know that some of our students deviate from the norm. They bring a, a degree of overexcitability in the classroom. And what good teachers do, they work, meet students where they are and provide the necessary instruction to meet their aptitude. Not, not meet their aptitude, because we don't want to meet their aptitude. We want to exceed their aptitude, because when you just meet it, sometimes students are more susceptible for low achievement and underachievement. We need to create curriculum that that connect with students' interests and elevates their capability. Uh, James, this has been fascinating. Um, I, do you have any sort of closing thoughts, things people should keep in mind when they're thinking about these diversity issues? When we think about these diversity issues, we need to think about what Perky talks about when he coined his, his theory around invitational education slash counseling. And he says, we have to be more deliberate and more inviting in the educational space. And he says, if some of the places that we need to explore in terms of creating the inviting space for young people. And, and what I mean by that, we should adapt to students rather than wanting students to adapt to the schools. We need more schools that are student-centered, not adult-centered. And so he talks about the five Ps, people, programs, policies, processes, and, um, places. So the people, who are the people, make sure that they align when we're talking about advanced academics, that they have the necessary training, that they're offering what we want to offer, and, and knowing who the stakeholders are and the role that they play in fostering a rigorous academic environment. The second thing is, is when I would talk about policies, we have policies across America. I had a colleague and I, we were asked to do a commission paper on uh, the status of gifted and talented programs at 20 of the largest school districts for African-American males. We, you can be in a predominantly black school district 
uh, and you can still see African-American males underrepresented. And some, when we did this paper, we looked at across the nation. We have some school districts have policies. If your parents don't come to PTA, uh, the kids can't be in gifted and talented programs. If the kids miss so many days, they can't be in a gifted and talented program. Or if the parents don't hand deliver the application, you can't be in a gifted and talented program. So we have policies that get in the way of some of this and processes when you try to appeal those things, some of these families become so fatigued because it's so rigorous. I can say in my school district, I say to myself, if I didn't know much about gifted and talented program, I don't know how parents, and I, I'd like to think I know quite a bit about it. I just don't know how our parents fill out those applications and put forth the best application for their kids to get in. It doesn't have to be that sophisticated and complex to kind of weed individuals out. So in other words, and, and, and we have to have programs that one, foster academic excellence, but not only that, there's some talent development we can do before students get to that point. And so we need to have programs that foster all those things. And so those are the some of the many things that I would highlight uh, that I think is very important. My friend, I really appreciate you coming on with us today and uh, sharing all this extremely helpful information. Thank you for being on Bright Now. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Plucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a Three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.